So I, I want to uh, draw out some of the implications of a project I was involved in, uh, which was a history of uh, non-governmental organisations in the UK in the 20th century. Uh, this was a project in which we were based at Birmingham, in which we were trying to do three broad things. That, that was to kind of provide a map of the sector as a whole, examine the role of a whole variety of different uh, non-government NGOs, and then look at their power, both in terms of uh, influence in policy, but in terms of shaping the language with which we might articulate uh, a series of concerns. And our three case studies were uh, humanitarianism, um, homelessness, and environmentalism. Uh, I'm going to present a load of slides, uh, which are all freely available on the website uh, ngo.beham.se.uk. We, we created a, a huge mass of data, or rather one of my postdocs did, because uh, I was incapable of doing some of the statistical analysis. But it's all freely available, uh, and it's, it's very good at providing overviews of the sector right up until to the present. So what I want to do now is look at some of the main trends uh, in civil society, uh, and then uh, focus on what that tells us about how civil society has changed in the UK, then move on to why it is that the public has decided to support a changing uh, type of civil society and what this tells us about the relationship uh, with between the public and government. So the classic study of all this uh, is a book by Robert Putnam uh, called Bowling Alone, in which he argues there's been a decline of associational life. We no longer join in. Uh, we become a much more atomized, individualistic society. Uh, and it affects uh, the extent to which people participate in politics of all kind, and it uh, leads to a, a, the, you know, the general decline of democracy. And there is a lot, if you apply that analysis uh, to the UK, there is a lot to support his thesis. Uh, turnout at general elections has declined since 1945. I haven't put the last election on because it was too demoralizing to do so. <laughs> uh, membership of political parties has declined massively. It's very difficult to do this because the Conservative Party didn't keep records, but the overall impression is one of uh, really quite significant decline. Church attendance, one of the pillars through which associational life takes place, has obviously been in a, a general uh, decline over the course of the 20th century. And the traditional types of organization that Putnam would focus on, such as women's organizations, the Women's Institute, the Mother's Union, that sort of thing. There's been a general decline in, in those types of activity as well. However, what we found, what we wanted to focus on was a counter trend, and that's the rise of NGOs, uh, voluntary associations, single issue advocacy groups, uh, many of which, because of the UK context, register as charities. And Whilst all my other graphs are going down, this graph is going up, and going up uh, quite remarkably as well, uh, to the extent that there's now just under 200,000 registered charities in the UK. Uh, the National Council of Voluntary Organisations uh, extended this analysis, and you know, they didn't want to just focus on those national bodies, but if you take a broad definition of associational life and include all sorts of local clubs and societies, then the National Council of Voluntary Organisations estimated that there are perhaps 900,000 organisations currently in the UK, which is quite remarkable. 
And so, you know, what this tells us, in contrast to Putnam, is that we're not having a decline. We're experiencing a changing sector. So you might find a decline in women's groups. Uh, here we have a, a, peaking, a peak in youth groups and then a subsequent de decline. But you contrast that with other sectors, especially the environmental one, and you see a rapid uh, expansion, particularly in the, in the later decades of the 20th century. Uh, this graph uh, shows the membership of some of the leading environmental organisations in the UK, uh, reaching uh, 7 million in 2008, uh, notwithstanding the enormous degree of double counting that inevitably takes place. And what we're dealing with is a big, big sector. The income of all charities, whether from voluntary sources or from official sources, uh, is over 50 billion. Total assets of NGOs, charities, is now at about 100 billion pounds. And then how do we relate with this? Well, this is a graph that measures uh, a whole bunch of surveys right back to the beverage report, the third installment of the beverage report in 1947, uh, where people are asked to what, how, how much they, how, have they volunteered uh, over the last month. These social surveys are absolutely notoriously uh, problematic, but what, and these fluctuations that you see are not because there's an actual fluctuation in volunteer, voluntary activities, a fluctuation in the ways in which these things are measured. So it's a really crude uh, graph, but we used every report we could get our hands on. And the evidence is obviously mixed, and you could, as Putnam might argue, there's a decline in volunteering, you could actually equally argue that there's something of a, a persistent level of volunteering and even an increase. So our key findings then about the sector as a whole was firstly that there has not been decline and this is a very important message to get across because what you can't do is assume a norm as to what civil society is or what democracy is and then it's easy then to see decline because you've fixed your definition. The point is that the definition is constantly changing, new groups are always, always emerging, new forms of participation are always uh, happening notwithstanding that some forms of participation might be better than others. The other key trend about NGOs in 20th century Britain is that there's been a tremendous amount of professionalisation. NGOs like to see themselves as these uh, bodies imbued of an amateur ethos in which the real desire to tackle a problem is what drove the organisation. And whilst that's true, very, very rarely... Uh, are these organisations set up by amateurs. They're set up by professional experts who really know what they're talking about. Uh, and they're quickly able uh, to galvanise their activities and to really uh, bring home a message. And what they're actually doing is they're bringing expertise to expertise. So while there's been a growing level of expert bodies at the official level, what NGOs have provided uh, in a democracy in which it's very difficult for the public to understand a range of technical issues or to bring an expert opinion to those increasingly technical bodies, NGOs provide that degree of expertise uh, and they do so uh, through very professional organisations. We have whole bunches of uh, statistics that demonstrate the, uh, the way in which this has become a professional sector about, you know, this is just the number of average uh, paid staff 
We're not, we, call, we still call it the voluntary sector sometimes, but we're actually talking about a sector in which there's careers, uh, there's progression, there's movement between sectors, and there's movement uh, between uh, the public sector uh, and the voluntary sector as well, and increasingly the private sector. Uh, my second, second point uh, is that what NGOs have done most of all is transform the nature of political debate. So rather than politics taking place at West, uh, Westminster and Whitehall, what NGOs have done is often bypass those traditional forms of political authority and speak directly to a wider public. And there's a whole bunch of examples uh, that I could come up with. Uh, many of you will remember the, uh, the Brandt Commission report in the early 1980s, in which the NGOs, and perhaps some of you in this room, um, embarked on a a letter-writing campaign and a, a publicisation, publicising of that uh, report uh, that meant that 100,000 copies were quickly sold. This, in turn, then led to pressure coming from outside Parliament from a, a letter-writing campaign, which forced the issue uh, onto the agenda and such that 400 MPs ended up writing to the Prime Minister about the subject. And NGOs, in bypassing the formal political arena, uh, uh, do so through by other mechanisms, increasingly that might, not, that might be uh, through social media today, but throughout the late 20th century it's in the newspaper, and we tracked the number of mentions of the 60, 65 leading NGOs uh, in The Guardian and The Times, and obviously they're uh, getting a lot more mentions and a lot more attentions. And finally, we argue that NGOs have an influence. Uh, they are seen to work. They have influenced political parties, they've influenced, influenced legislation, and they've provided this alternative way of doing politics. And because they seem to work, people have supported them. And again, this is an important point to make, and I'm going to come back to it in a bit, because we can all come up with countless examples of where NGOs have brought pressure to bear on government, on political parties, on the public sector, in which real uh, legislative and policy change has taken place. Environmentalism is clearly a great example. Uh, this measures the number of times the political parties are mentioning uh, the environment in their election campaigns. Uh, and in clearly what the environmental movement did was they made the issue part of the mainstream. And there was a green rush uh, in the late 1980s when even Margaret Thatcher embraced uh, in green or environmental concerns. But why is it that the public has chosen to support these organizations and has done so in increasing numbers? Well, this brings us back to the point made by Putnam. And what Putnam does, he argues that there's a decline in associational life, which leads to a decline in civil trust, which leads to a decline in political trust. What we decided to do was not take trust as a sociological category, but we followed Honor O'Neill, the moral philosopher, and argued that it's an active category. Trust is something that we decide to do. So you can't measure overall trust and say it's in decline. What you have to try and capture is the different ways in which people are choosing to trust one type of organization, one body of expertise, uh, one sector over another. And this is what, we've, this is what comes out most apparently. You cannot, they, these measures of trust that we use to create this graph are, are absolutely dreadful. You know, they, 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 it's the overall trend that's the more important point. 
And that trend demonstrates that the public is, has a dis discriminates in who it decides to trust. So you can see the collapse in trust in banks, for obvious reasons at the end, uh, but you can see a deliberate decision to trust the opinions of charities. And we, you can get really interesting surveys done where the level of trust of the public in government scientists on environmental issues will be about 40%. Levels of trust in the private sector on environmental issues will be about the same. But it'll be double that when Friends of the Earth and other such organizations uh, speak out uh, on these issues. So we're trusting the public is deciding to trust professional expert bodies to bring expertise uh, to expertise. So overall then, the main points that really need to be driven home, uh, this isn't a static sector, it's constantly evolving and constantly changing. And because of that, despite uh, Douglas Hurd's Little Platoons, David Cameron's Big Society, on all the other attempts to try and control civil society, it never works because it always evolves. If you do control the sector of it, others will emerge uh, and do something different. And the other thing is that NGOs don't become an alternative to government. They become a complementary system in which they're advocating on types of uh, issues. They're providing, they're providing services in, in other aspects. But the two, the private and the voluntary sector, are often complementing one another rather than being in, in competition. And again, that's an important point to make when people try to intervene and make the sector do something that it might not want necessarily to do itself. However, if trust is an active category, if it's something that it's, we decide to do, then what is the trust that we are placing in NGOs? So we might think, well, we're supporting NGOs to do what NGOs say they want to do. But actually, the public doesn't necessarily uh, support an NGO for the same reasons that the staff at that NGO might think that that organization is involved. So when Putnam criticizes uh, NGOs as a type of democratic participation because we just make checkbook uh, or direct debit payments and it's easy to kind of opt out. What we're actually doing is we, we do opt out and we switch and we switch allegiances uh, and people are private, have a privatized notion of what their political interventions are and they're constantly moving their allegiances and it may be that they're doing so because they're constantly disagreeing with the NGOs, maybe trusting them uh, on one level to take on board a whole range of issues, but on another level they don't, and that might meet, lead to changes. There's then a wider question about what it is that trust is doing in terms of, okay, we trust uh, an NGO to tackle an environmental problem, but how much is that environmental problem going to be tackled? Change, as in... Uh, curing world poverty or something like that might be the ultimate goal. But charitable solutions can't tackle systematic underlying issues because of the nature of charitable legislation. And so what the public is doing is supporting some NGOs, but maybe the public is also supporting NGOs because they can't bring about the systematic change that might actually undermine the affluence 
and the ability to engage in this type of politics in the first place. So it's all very well, and humanitarianism and cl uh, climate change are very good examples. We articulate our concerns over these uh, issues, but we do so in where and supporting solutions which don't undermine the basis of our ability to support them overall. And then there's a question of NGO effectiveness. We have looked at so many examples uh, of how change happens at the, uh, at the policy level. Uh, we know it's about uh, lobbying, we know it's about petitioning, we know it's about uh, bypassing sometimes and going straight to the media, we know it's about leafleting, we know it's about changing the terms of the debate. And so we're in this ideal situation to provide a model of how NGOs uh, can provide uh, can, can have provided change. But our, solution, but our conclusion was we could provide no such model. And that what the real lesson, I suppose, from history was that there isn't one pathway or one set of policy tools that you can use from history to say, this is how change happens. The real only lesson is that it's all of the tactics that NGOs engage in, and that the only real lesson is that it's bloody hard work. <laughs> and that you've got to continue doing it. Uh, so in the absence of a model, I have to finish with an anecdote, and my postdoctoral researcher on this project was a committed environmentalist uh, and a brilliant scholar. And at the end of the project, he, which he'd got involved in because he was really keen on examining NGOs as political actors and civil society actors, at the end of it, he gave up an academic career, joined the Labour Party, became a councillor, and he's now uh, the Birmingham City Councillor uh, for the Environment, he decided that, and I don't necessarily agree with him, but he made a decision that if real change is going to be taking place, it has to take place through different institutions. <laughs>